So we're six days into 2019, and I know some of you, or probably many of you, have some goals you want to work on this new year, self-improvement goals. So I want to ask you to raise your hand if this is true of you. I'm going to mention some areas of uh, improvement. So raise your hand if you're seeking to make a physical change, diet or exercise this year. Raise your hand. All right, so we got a handful. Raise your hand if you've got a, a physical space goal. There's something you want to clean or improve about your home or apartment or dorm. I guess you don't clean your dorm or do anything with your dorm, but uh, nobody really does that. Uh, what about this? What about uh, relational uh, relationship changes, okay, where you're wanting to maybe walk away from some unhealthy relationships. Don't raise your hand yet because they might be in this room. I'm going to add some things to that. Uh, also, maybe there's some relationships you want to pursue with family or friends that you, you want to improve that relationship. Raise your hand if that's your, one of your goals. All right, now raise your hand if you've got a spiritual goal. You want to spend more time in the Word or more time in prayer or more time pursuing a certain ministry. You guys get the brownie points. The rest of you are seeking after temporal things. And no, I'm just kidding. Those are good things too. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure this time of year towards self-improvement, isn't there? Uh, and I believe that there are many things that we can apply ourselves to, uh, that we can renew in 2019. But how do we improve that which will last for eternity? Our relationship with Jesus Christ to become more like Jesus. You know, uh, the character qualities of Christ are laid out in Galatians 5 where Paul is contrasting the transformed life that's led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, versus the world and living for self and sin. And he says in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So Paul highlights nine character traits that represent our new life in Christ. And they go together to, to make the face, or you could say the character of Christ. But whenever we speak of transformation in Christ, the question comes up, is it our will or Christ's work in us that produces change? What do you think? It's Christ's work in us. I'm going to say, I'm going to argue from Scripture that it's both. That it's both. I knew that you would say it's just Christ's work in us. So I set you up for failure there. But it really is both. We see both in Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, salvation happens in three stages. It's not just a one-time thing. Initially at salvation, we are, uh, we are healed, released from the penalty of sin because of Christ's death and resurrection. We're released. Christ took the penalty that we deserved for sin, and that happens instantaneously at salvation by grace through faith. It's not, not, uh, uh, it's not by our works. It's a gift of God. But there's another stage of salvation that's mentioned in Ephesians 2.10, the very next verse. It says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
So we're saved by grace through faith for works. We're not saved by works, but we're saved for works. Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 speaks of this first stage of salvation where we're released from the penalty of sin, but Ephesians 2.10 speaks of the uh, second stage of salvation where we're released from the power of sin on uh, a, a, a gradual level throughout our life in Christ. Increasing but gradual growth as we're released from the power of sin after salvation so that we can do good works for Jesus. Then, of course, when we see Jesus face to face, we'll be saved from the presence of sin altogether. But this last, this second stage is what I want to focus on tonight and throughout this series. How we are released from the power of sin to do good works for Jesus Christ. Because you see, God's word teaches us that our will, that is our effort, is involved in becoming more like Jesus that in fact, we have the power through Christ to make the choice to become more like Jesus and apply our will in the process. It's a partnership between God's work in us and our will empowered by the Holy Spirit to grab a hold of the nine character traits we see in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. This may seem like a strange idea to some of you. It may seem like, no, Chris, it's all about just Christ's work in us. He, he works in us and uh, we, we, don't even have, we don't even have any uh, skin in the game. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Did you catch what Paul said here? What did he say? Do your best. So it's the idea of diligence, of self-discipline, of making every effort to do good works for Jesus Christ. And we read the same from Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Let me pause there. So God has given us everything we need to live for him. He's given us all the resources. It says, Through these, these resources, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So we, have, we share in the divine nature of God so that we can escape the corruption of the world. For this reason, it says, because of this, because we've been given these resources in verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. So we're to make every effort. You know, it's good to know that though our natural wills will probably not, some of the New Year's resolutions you guys have in mind, you won't even remember three months from now. To be honest, statistically, you won't even remember. Uh, but it's good to know we have a Father who's already empowered our will, supercharged our will, sanctified our will, so that we can become more like him. We apply our will, but only because he's redeemed our will and given us all we need for life and godliness. So through this series, we'll look at nine character choices that will make us more like Jesus. And these are to be our goal. This is the New Year's resolution every year for a believer, and Jesus promises to complete this work in us. But we do have a choice. 
We'll look at each of these choices in Galatians 5.22, and it'll lead us towards the abundant life. Again, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So first, we're going to look at love. And it's the only one that I'm going to deal with tonight, this first one, because we get it wrong. I mean, we talk about loving baseball. I mean, I don't ever talk about loving baseball, right? But some people do. We talk about loving a restaurant, our favorite food, receiving love, giving love, making love. We listen to music that speaks of love as a feeling that's selfish, that's self-centered, that's often one-sided, deceitful, cruel, only skin deep, and often short-lived. And even though we often get caught up in the world's confusing depiction of love, we understand why there's constant song and pen dedicated to it, don't we? We get it. We know there's a hole in the human heart that craves reassurance and affection and belonging and fellowship. It's a God-shaped hole. Love is oxygen for the soul. We simply must have it. The first thing an infant needs is to be tenderly held and cared for so that they can literally feel love. They can understand it right at birth. And the last thing we need before we leave this world, the last thing we want is to be surrounded by our loved ones, don't we? God has much to say about love. The word appears some 567 times from Genesis to Revelation. And God's story contained in the Bible is about his unconditional, relentless love for us. Until Jesus came to the earth, we didn't know of this unconditional, relentless love. The world had never known it, so they had to make up another word for it. So they came up with agape. Agape is unconditional, divine love that God exercises towards us. And at the heart of agape is sacrifice. It's not spontaneous or impulsive like the world's love. It's not selfish. It's a reasoning, choosing, sacrificial love. And because Jesus loves us this way, we can love others this way as well, sacrificially. We'll see in the word tonight that biblical love is what we do, not how we feel. So that means real love. The author of love has said it's what we do, not how we feel. Can we say that together? Love is what we do, not how we feel. Ready? One, two, three. Love is not how we feel. Very good. You guys did a good job on the first try. Usually it takes you several. That was good. Biblical love is a partnership between God's work in us and our will. Our sanctified, sanctified means renewed, a will that's being made like Jesus. In Romans 5, 5, it says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Christ's sacrificial love has been made available to us. We can love in the same way because the Spirit applies it to us. He gives us the capacity to love sacrificially so that we can apply our will to it. If we didn't have the Holy Spirit that's given, that indwells us at salvation, we would not be able to truly love. We could love the way the world defines it, but we couldn't love the way the author, the author of love, Jesus Christ, defines it. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's been describing through this whole chapter that many of you have probably heard at weddings where love is patient, love is kind, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, he's describing the attributes of love, and in the very last verse, he seems, seems to be winding down. 
in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13. He says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You know, but we got to be careful with our Bibles because the, the chapters and the verses were added later, right? So that we could organize the Bible and uh, find different passages easier. But Paul wasn't done with his thoughts on love. In the very next verse, the chapter breaks and it goes on to chapter 14, verse 1. He says, follow the way of love. In the New Living Translation, it says, let love be your highest goal. Love is to be the act of sacrificially loving people is to be our highest goal. So the love of Christ is poured out into our hearts in a passive sense. We're given the capacity to love, but it's also active. We're to pursue sacrificially loving others with all our might because love is what we do, not how we feel. Let's say that again. Love is what we do, not how we feel. Ready? One, two, three. You guys are awesome. So choosing to love others is a partnership between God's work in us and our sanctified will. It should be hard. It should be very hard. And it should be very rewarding. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. We must apply every ounce of strength that God's given to us, this act of love. That's why it's called a sacrifice. And if it just kind of happened in us spontaneously at salvation, Jesus wouldn't have commanded it. And he commands it uh, so clearly. In John 13, 34, biblical love is a command. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then John 15, verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And Jesus modeled this sacrificial love for us, didn't he? In 1 John 3, 16, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Lay down our lives. Our lives are to be consumed, obsessed with loving one another. What if we were as obsessed or more obsessed with loving sacrificially the way Jesus does as the world is with their pseudo-saccharine sweet fake love. I mean, that's all you ever hear and see. That, I mean, every book you read, every magazine you open, every song you hear, it's all about this fake love. But what if we were as obsessed with not complaining about all the details of the church or not thinking that a program's going to fix it or a bigger building or better worship, but what if our obsession was love? If I knew what was going on in your life and you knew what was going on in my life and we were constantly praying for one another and asking the Spirit to uh, uh, creatively lead us towards how to meaningfully love one another. On October 22nd, 2007, the first Medal of Honor was awarded for combat in Afghanistan and it was presented to the family of Lieutenant Michael Murphy, a Navy SEAL who gave his life to make a radio call to help his team. Murphy, who was not yet 30, was only the fourth Navy SEAL to earn the Medal of Honor since the Vietnam War. In June 2005, Murphy and three other SEALs were sent on a mission into the rugged Afghan mountains to search for a known terrorist. They encountered local tribesmen who reported them to the Taliban. Murphy's team was trapped by scores of enemy troops who surrounded them on three sides and forced them into a ravine. Soon all four men had sustained injuries. We were hurting, said the team's sole survivor, Petty Officer Second Class Marcus Luttrell. 
We were out of ammo, and it was bad. It was real bad. Murphy moved from man to man to keep his team together, though he had to expose himself to enemy fire to do so. Then, because the mountain's terrain blocked communications, he made the decision to move into an open area to call for help. Already wounded and despite incoming fire, he provided his unit's location and information about the opposing force. While making the call, he took two more rounds and dropped the handset, but managed to retrieve it and complete the call. He even said thank you at the end of the transmission. Petty Officer Luttrell survived the first firestorm because he was blasted over the ridge by a rocket-propelled grenade and was knocked unconscious. When he came to, he hid in a rock crevice, staunching his bleeding wounds with mud. Almost a week later, after being taken in by local villagers who refused to turn him over to the Taliban, he was rescued. Marcus Luttrell came home determined to tell the story of that day. His book, Lone Survivor, became a movie of the same name, ensuring that Lieutenant Michael Murphy and the rest of his team are never forgotten. Uh, Believe it or not, I actually saw that movie with my mother. And if you know my mom, you wouldn't think she actually likes action movies more than romantic comedies and all that stuff, so God bless her. The movie's a little raw, but I, I like the illustration that it provides us of the cross of Calvary. Like Murphy's team, we were trapped by the enemy, outnumbered, wounded, and facing overwhelming odds. Yet one man, Jesus, stood up to the enemy of sin and death to save us. And we're called to the same. In Ephesians 5, verse 1, it says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is an impossible task, isn't it? To love like Jesus. But it must become our obsession because we have the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us. I believe we're all hungry for this kind of love. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, this kind of love is prayed for uh, for the church by Paul the Apostle. Biblical love is the heart of the church. And notice here in these passages I'm going to read what Paul doesn't pray for the churches. He doesn't pray for greater attendance. He doesn't pray for bigger offerings. He doesn't pray for more programs or even for more people to become Christians, although that's the prayer of Paul. Here's what he prays for the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. In other words, our love should be more meaningful, more powerful, more creative, and it should grow more and more and more. And for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that uh, he, he writes to the church at Corinth and tells them that they should imitate him as he imitates Christ. So we too should pray for greater love for our brothers and sisters in the church. And we can pray right out of the Bible. We can pray right out of Ephesians 3, for example, here. I can pray, Lord, I pray that out of your 
uh, out of your glorious riches, I pray that you would strengthen, awaken with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that awaken would be rooted and established in love and that awaken would add power together with all the Lord's people everywhere to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, Lord, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Lord, please help awaken to swim in your love, to eat it, to drink it, to be obsessed with your sacrificial love. We know it can change us, it can change the church, it can change the world. Please help us, Lord. Amen. Can you envision a future for yourself, for Awaken, for your family, for your house, your dorm, your home group, where love is the priority? Where it's prioritized, where we work hard at it? I can. And you know what I see it looking like? I see this congregation when we're in times where we're holding one another accountable, maybe you're sitting in your living room and you're at a coffee shop or in your dorm and you're holding one another accountable, that the first question should not be, hey, how are you doing with purity? Are you in the word? All these, dude, those are important. But that first and foremost, how are you sacrificially loving those God's put in your life? You know why? When we fill our lives up with loving other people, there is no room in our schedule or our minds for sin. To kill sin, we say yes to Jesus' sacrificial love. It's not about keeping a list of do's and don'ts. And it's addictive, isn't it? Have you ever sacrificially loved someone, did something you really didn't want to do, but you sacrificially loved them, and then over time you thought of more ways you could love them? It truly does wake us up, and it resurrects us. It resurrects us from selfishness and materialism and lust and all the rest. Porn loses its pull, addictions weaken, and life becomes full of joy and joyful when we truly love others. That's what the church is about. It's not about a meeting. It's not about just showing up to home group and church. It's about what if you had a trading card? All right, if everybody in this room, it's not about comparison, but just to give us a picture. If we all had a, a, a baseball card, trading card, and on the back was our service, what would it say? What would it say you did yesterday, last week? Whose house would it say you cleaned? What conversations would it say you've had late into the night? Who would it say that you're praying for? What what single mother's lawn would it say you have mowed? What loving acts would it record that you've uh, done for your home group or for your family and especially those you don't like? Now let's get practical here. 1 Corinthians 6, 14, Paul says, let all that you do be done with love. I don't know about you, but for me, this is the theme this year, love. Sacrificial acts of love. That is what I'm praying for this year, for God to do in my life. So first, pray for opportunities to love and pray for opportunities for the church to love as well. The Lord will answer this prayer, and he will. Lord, show me ways I can love my parents. Show me ways I can love my spouse. Show me ways I can love my home group. Show me ways I can love my church. That's his will, so he's going to answer that prayer, and he's going to show us. Second, start with your family, your roommate, or your close friends. 
think, how might, how might my mom or dad or my spouse or my roommate feel most loved today or this week? Write it down. Be intentional. We plan those things that matter to us. And do it when you don't feel like it. Apply your will to it. God's given us a will for a reason. Don't back down and don't listen to your flesh and don't listen to your grumbling mind and your grumbling heart. You know, uh, my wife, as we've gotten older, uh, she's, she's like fine wine, though. She's aged so well. She's stunning. Absolutely stunning right there. But she, uh, we just celebrated our 22nd anniversary. So um, it was awesome. So uh, as she, as we've gotten older, her love language has changed. I don't remember what it used to be, but now it's acts of service. And I've said, can it be easier? Can't you just, like, just, can't it be gifts so I can just buy you something? But no, it's not gifts. She, instead of buying flowers, she'd rather I clean a bathroom. She's made that very clear. Because, you know, as your life fills up, she wants me to take things off of her plate. So I have purposed to love her by cleaning more and doing the laundry more. Okay, so trying to clean pretty much the whole house and, uh, you know, all that. But before you think too highly of me, much of the time my attitude stinks while I'm doing it. But here's the thing. I don't listen to the internal grumbling in my head. I have decided to do it. I mean, think of what people do in the name of athletics, in the name of vocation, in the name of education, what they apply themselves to, and that's from people who don't know Jesus. We have a tremendous capacity to serve given to us by our Father. We can do it. Uh, and, you know, I find that as I serve Becky in this way, I'm, I'm enjoying making her life easier. I want God to change my heart to where when I go to be with the Lord, and I'll be the one to go first, almost definitely. We've already talked about this many times. I want her to say, my husband was my servant. Because I've had that modeled to me by other godly men. And I want to walk that out. My husband was my servant. You know, many of us want to do just great big acts of love. We want to do the big outreach project or go on the missions trip, and that's important. Those things are important. But, uh, and we want to just avoid the small stuff because it's annoying. But the thing is, life is about the small stuff. I think of all you Young Life leaders here. There's a bunch of new ones here tonight as well. Let's give our Young Life missionaries a hand. We so love and appreciate all the work that you guys are doing for high school, middle school, and college students around uh, the city. You guys are amazing. And man, you're on that campus, many of you, every day getting rejected by students. And it's not easy these days. I was a youth pastor for many years, but it was a long time ago. I think it was a little easier to get on campus back then. And you are sacrificing. You're doing these small things every day. But many of us don't want to do that. But remember, Paul says, let all that you do be done with love. You see, because many of us view sacrificial love as something big that we're called to do just every now and again, to where if we were to view biblical love like our bank account, many of us would view a, a big act of love like, well, I'm going to take a $1,000 bill, and I'm going to lay one here, and I'm going to lay one there, and I, you know, I'm just going to give a huge amount of money. I'm just going to only sacrificially love uh, in big ways every now and again, when really what God calls us to is to give 25 cents here, 50 cents there to constantly be handing out sac small sacrificial acts of love. That's what we're called to. 
So finally, after first love the circles around you. Who you are at home is who you are. Your immediate family, who you are with your mother, your father, your brothers and sisters, that is who you are. Your spouse, that's who you are. Not who you are at work or who you are at church. How can you love those people in your life? And then work your way out from there. Until finally, we'll learn to love our enemies. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on evil and good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Naturally, this seems absurd to us, doesn't it? To love our enemies? How can you love someone who's lied to you to make themselves look good? Or, or how can you love someone who's stolen from you or betrayed you in some way or whatever other injustice? It's an enormous task, but we have many examples. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, in Luke 23. When Stephen was being stoned to death for preaching the gospel, he also asked God to forgive his executioners. It says in Acts 7, then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Come on, you go ahead and come back up for worship here if you so choose. The Apostle Paul spent his adult life as a servant of Christ, and he was beaten, whipped, rebuked, and despised for it. And he says, when we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly in 1 Corinthians 4. In his letter to the Romans, in his letter to the Romans, Paul said, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Man, that's a steep call, isn't it? So we all have everyday enemies, don't we? Everyday enemies. The person who cuts you off in traffic, the rude person at your work, the unbearable boss, the unfair teacher or professor. Can we defeat this kind of evil with the love of Christ? Yes, we can. We can pray for those who cut us off in traffic. We can buy lunch for the difficult person at work or the professor. You know, I had an everyday enemy years ago. In my first house, my, my Josiah, who's now 13, but he slept in our basement. We had a finished basement. I'm not a bad parent, just you new parents these days are overprotective. That's a normal thing people did back then. Now he's like, you let your child sleep below ground? No, it's normal. So uh, uh, we had, I don't know how all this kind of stuff works, but we had a sump pump put in in our basement. And the guy who put it in put it in wrong. And so our house started taking on water. And I called him. I've got a son who sleeps down there. And he was like floating. And no, I'm just kidding. He wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't that much water. But uh, uh, I called the guy and said, hey, you need to make this right. And he said, no, you just need to make a homeowner's claim. And I said, no, 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 no. My insurance, I'm not doing it that way. That's lying. Because he basically wanted me to say it was my fault. I said, no, you have insurance. I know you pay a lot of money every year. You need to make it right. And he refused to do that. And he sent out uh, an uh, insurance claims adjuster to our house. And this person who, honestly, it felt like an interrogation. I mean, it was really weird. Uh, he started slapping me around. No, he didn't slap me around. But I thought he was going to. Uh, and he, he, they determined that I intentionally messed up this sump pump and that it was my fault. Well, this infuriated me. I don't know why. 
but it got under my skin. I mean, I went to his place of business. I called him so many times that he stopped answering my calls. And eventually, I mean, it was eating at me. And so I wrote him a letter, and I told him that one of these days I was going to get it. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't write that. I told him that I forgave him, that I released him from what he did, even though it was an injustice, that I, in fact, did not mess with this sump pump, and that, he, that, that I forgave him, and that I was praying for him, and I was praying for him. And all of a sudden, just bitterness was gone. So maybe you can do that. The next time somebody cuts you off in traffic, pray for him. The next time that uh, uh, student in one of your classes who uh, uh, you feel like is rude, maybe seriously, buy him lunch. Give him a gift certificate to Chipotle and watch how it just releases bitterness in you. And then many of us have endured the devastating effects of an enemy who has really hurt us. Maybe a parent who left, maybe a romantic rejection, maybe some sort of betrayal. We can pray for these people and we can tell God that we release them and forgive them. I've written letters before to people in my life who have really hurt me where it would not be appropriate for me to have a conversation with them or safe. Uh, And I've written letters that I don't send where where I release them and I forgive them because I don't want bitterness I don't know what happens in the spiritual realm, but somehow bitterness is used as a tool for the enemy to hurt us and hurt those around us. Maybe you can call somebody this new year or love them in some other way that God is is calling you to. So what's your plan this year to love? Can we spend some time on that on our own this week? Some time actually writing out, what's my plan to love my family? What's my plan to love my roommates? What am I gonna do this week? How am I going to love sacrificially? Wouldn't it be awesome if at the end of 2019, there were thousands of hours represented in this room of sacrificial love for the kingdom of God? That's what's going to bring change. We have the supernatural power of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. We just have to use it. Lord, we thank you so much for loving us and sacrificing yourself on the cross, Lord, for willingly trading your life for ours. Lord, we know that we should die for our sins. We should be separated from you, but we thank you that you took the penalty that we deserved. Lord, we know that naturally we just want to take care of ourselves. We want to give ourselves to self-gratification and pleasure, but we know that you've called us to so much more You've called us to an abundant life where it's not about us. It's not about us, Lord. Lord, help us to choose to lay down our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen.